Warning, the following podcast contains adult language and childish comedy. Listener discretion is advised. And now, please adjust your headphone volume to an unreasonable level and enjoy the most dynamic and electrifyingly entertaining podcast ever to conquer cyberspace. Hello, friends, and welcome to the most powerful podcast ever created, the amazing pop culture podcast starring Dags and Rez. Today, we are very excited, Michael. We have a powerful toy company CEO we're going to talk about, him and his wife, Jack Pressman, and his book, A Century of American Toys and Games, The Story of Pressman Toy. Welcome, Jim Pressman and Donna. Thank you. Thank you. We're very happy to be here. Tell us how this started. It all started with Abraham, didn't it? Yeah, that's uh, Jack's father had a, uh, a, he called it a variety store, sporting goods and toys in Harlem, New York, back uh, in the early 20th century. So the earliest photo we have is uh, when my father, Jack, in 1916, was uh, shown in 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 a photograph that I received that uh, his brother actually gave me, and it shows him in front of the store in 1916. And that's where Jack first kind of got uh, inducted into the world of of toys. Back then, it wasn't as much gaming. It was just like actual toys, things to play with. Yeah, exactly. When we started to do research on this book, my wife and I uh, found out a lot of things that we never knew. So Jack's first claim when he started his company, Jay Pressman, in 1922, 100 years ago, by the way, uh, was uh, something called a Zello piano. And uh, it was kind of like a xylophone spelled with a Z. And when you see a picture of him in his uh, showroom, his first showroom we have, it's filled with Zello pianos. It's crazy. (laughs) We have no idea. And uh, the line consisted of sewing kits and uh, magic sets and some fishing games, all paper, cardboard, wood, uh, metal, just a variety of toys. Yeah, it seems like in the beginning there, it was a lot of like practical toys, toys you would find that adults were using and kids wanted to mimic what the adults were, were doing. Like like you said, you had assort, the assorted uh, iron toys that looked like pickaxes and axes and... <laughs> And rakes that, and shovels. <laughs> yeah, it goes up the category of, can you believe, you know, they sold that to children type right. thing. <laughs> I, I know it, it looks like it, it weighed. I think in the, in the picture it was talking about how much they weigh. You know? it's gross. It, yeah. But, it, but it's like, a, they talk about 10 gross weighing 98 pounds. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's hard to say. I, I think they're miniature. <laughs> but they're <Right>. still, <laughs> and yes. they're still iron. Yeah. 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 And the, the embroidery sets, I mean, that's like a, a practical thing that you would need to know back then. Uh, and then, you know, you make it into a, a toy set, you know, and you, and you, you have them make them for dolls. But at the same time, you're, you're learning an, a valuable skill at the time as well. No, you're exactly right. Uh, a lot of the toys were mimicking what adults would be doing, you know, a play rolling, a, a, you know, the police, they had a police outfit. You know, with the Billy Club and the, right. and the 
<laughs> and uh, the cap pistol. Uh, so yeah, you know, a role play uh, for the boys and a separate kind of role play for the girls. Jack, your father, he came back from World War One, and he started Jay Pressman and Company. He came back, started uh, first working with a jobber, a wholesaler. And then uh, he joined forces with another company that had just started to manufacture some toys and games. And the company became known as Jay Pressman in 1922. And that's where it all started. Uh, early shows in Manhattan, uh, which was kind of the hub of the toy industry in terms of offices and showrooms. He had an office uh, on West 17th, West 17th street or East 17th, I think uh, East 17th street. No, West 17th okay. street. Okay. We were right the first time. Um, and uh, eventually in the night, his first big claim to fame was when he discovered a game called uh, Hop Ching Chinese checkers. That, that was, uh, that was, that was a big one. Now tell us about Chinese checkers. To me, when it, when I think of board games, that's one of the ones I think of. You know, you think of Parcheesi, Chinese checkers. Tell us a little bit about the history of Chinese checkers. In doing the book, we went back and looked at uh, some of the origination of, of the game and how it was kind of a, a brainchild first of, of someone in the U.S. It then transferred over to England, where it was changed a little bit more. And, and then it came back with some German influence. But when it came to, to the United States... It had formed this star of six, six, six uh, star, uh, six pointed star. And uh, so six players could play and it has the marbles. And uh, Jack found it. Uh, someone was making this version uh, in Colorado somewhere. And in the toy industry, when you find something you like, you try to do it better. Uh, <laughs> and uh as we, we don't know exactly all the details, but uh, Jack had purchased a marble factory uh, some years previous. And so that enabled him when Chinese checkers started to, take you know, off. take off. Uh, he was able to supply himself with all the marbles he needed. And Chinese checkers was the trivial pursuit of its day. They couldn't make enough of them. See, and I think that's one of the most genius things is when you create a game that has marbles, you'll never run out of marbles if you own the factory that makes the marbles. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Marbles is such a, a cool game to begin with, I mean, by itself. Um, I know in the book you, it talks about, um, you know, the different types of marbles that uh, um, Pressman was selling, you know, the, like with the cat's eyes and stuff. But that, uh, on its own, that's marbles is a good, fun game to play as well. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, finding a game that uses the marbles, like you said, is a good utilization of your of your of your assets. Right. I, looking at uh, the pictures in the book, especially with, with the Chinese checkers on page nineteen, that red box with the white lettered font on it, it brought back so many memories because I think every everybody in my family had a red box with the <laughs> with the white letters on it. From it was a Pressman game, so. Uh, it, w it was fun watching or uh, looking at the pictures and like, oh, yeah, we had the checkerboard set. We had the Chinese checkers growing up, you know, along with like the mastermind and, and the triominoes as well. But we had the classic red box as well. Right. Yeah. No, it's always nice to hear that. And I think anybody who reads the book, you know, who looks at the pictures in the book, because there's a lot of pictures. My favorite part was the pictures. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they'll They'll find something, you know 
from the 80s, 90s, 2000s that, you know, they'll have had in their in their closet uh, to play. But, um, you know, the Chinese checkers went from cardboard to, 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 to metal and then, you know, uh, plastic. But um, it, it, it was in the line and still today, you know, uh, 90 years later, it's still a very popular game. Now, Mike was talking about Mastermind, and he was obsessed with that game. Let's get into that. I want to, what is the history on Mastermind? Okay. Well, Mastermind was invented by an Israeli, and uh, he licensed it to a company called Invicta, which was a British company that basically sold uh, school supplies. And somehow, Mastermind, which is a game that teaches certain educational skills, found its way onto some shelves, uh, both in England and then in the U.S., and became this hugely popular game back in the 80s. And as the company was not really accustomed to this kind of success, they overdid it in the mastermind uh, genre. You know, it's very common when you have a game to make a kid's version or uh, the three-player version and all different kinds of versions. It was at the time when there were small electronic handheld type games, and that's what did them in. They produced a tremendous amount of, you know, uh, handheld electronic mastermind games and ended up not being able to sell them. So they were looking for someone to purchase the brand for the U.S., uh, which we did in one of the biggest uh, ventures we ever did uh, during my tenure, actually, spending some $3 million, I think, for mastermind at that time. Uh, and we got the rights for the U.S. Uh, Hasbro has the rights now for everywhere else in the world except here. Wow. So they had the handheld machine that was similar to like Mattel football kind of? Was it about that size or? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Like the size of a cell phone today. So Triominoes, what can you tell us about that game? That's another one ubiquitous. When you, when you think of games, you think of Triominoes. Yeah. Triominoes came from an individual named Alan Cowan. I don't think he ever created anything else that was, he, he did Quadominoes too, but that was not anywhere nearly as successful as Triominoes. And he came into the Pressman Toys showroom in 1968. And uh, I think it was our secretary. This is before I was involved in the business. And the secretary out front said, well, it looks interesting. Let me get you to someone else in the company to take a look. And, uh, they looked at it and they decided, uh, you know, it was, you know, taking a basic and doing a little twist to it. And as we talk about in the book, that was always Jack's formula was taking something basic and giving it a little twist. And in this case, it was uh, a domino uh, three sided. And uh, like you said, after uh, it, it became ubiquitous to, to uh, big success, 10 years later, we were selling about 150,000 pieces without any promotion. Wow. And when I, I saw that, we started to advertise it on TV, and soon it was doing half of the volume of the company. And that, that really started us on a roll. Looking at the book, um, you go through a lot of history and family history. Were there any surprises that you found doing the research on the book in the beginning, or was it a lot of stuff you already knew? You know, I knew a lot from my mother's era. Because, uh, you know, I lived through a lot of it. But my father, I knew virtually, other than Chinese checkers, I knew very, very little. And I had never seen the ads that my mother did when she first joined the company with my father. When, I mean, the story goes that 
my mother's married Jack in 1941. Jay Pressman was, uh, you know, on the map. And uh, shortly thereafter, she started to actively uh, participate in the company. And then in 1947, Jack split up with his partner, Jay Pressman, started Pressman Toy, and Lynn became vice president of the company at that point. So the things that we learned were some of the ads that she started to do in, in the Playthings magazine that were totally different from everything that had been done before. It was very exciting to go through all the Playthings magazine. And when we got to that era, we couldn't believe, you know, some of the ads. <laughs> right. It was very flamboyant. So the ads, you know, show her all dressed up in a doctor kit and my father in a doctor kit when they're selling the the. The, the nurse bags and the, and the doctor sets. They were very creative for the time. Yeah. Yeah, they were. They yeah, were. I, I remember when it, it said that, uh, you know, it went from a lot of just like, I don't know, I, I would, you know, the, the ads would be more like stats about the, the merchandise. And then when your mom took over, it was more, here are the pictures, here are, you know, more, more color. Here's, you know, it's better than black and white. These are, you know, here's the right. actual merchandise in action. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of the ads, you know, were teasers, you know, right. uh, look what's coming up. We're not telling you, but watch what's behind the curtain. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the D-Day right. um, marketing. Yeah. I think that was, that was genius, you know, because of the doctor kit and the dentist kit that was coming out. That was pretty. Exactly. Pretty cool. Um, and then she added uh, actual kid models in the, in the uh, catalogs as well. And, and Jim, you were one of the first models they used. How was that? Did, did you understand? you know, what that was all about when you were doing it? Or was it more you were just doing that your parents asked you to be in these pictures and so you did it? I, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it, it's fun to look back and see all the pictures, but I, I, I had no idea. I remember going to the showroom, you know, and playing on the floor <laughs> and, 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 and doing all that. And I remember their office. And I remember the desk that my mother and father shared, which my father had built custom made for them, the, his and her desk, which was quite a thing to find a picture of that that we found in, in the archives and put in the book. You know, he really considered her his equal. He was president and she was vice president. But, you know, so when my father died, she was ready to take over the business. Now, Rummy Cube, that's another game that I think of when I think of Pressman Toys. Now, what can you tell us about that? That was a kind of a mashup of Rummy and Mahjong. Yeah, another game that came from Israel. And uh, the, the game itself was created uh, after, uh, after World War II. And uh, they needed, they couldn't play cards. Right, and in, in Israel, you couldn't play cards on the Sabbath. So they created a way to uh, Interesting. <laughs> the Sabbath. Right, <laughs> with tile. Yes. But uh, a, cheat, yes. a cheat code, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wanted to get into the TV game shows because mm. that, that's huge. And, and who, who is the ma mastermind of that? <laughs> well, I'll, take, I'll, take, I'll take, take credit for that one. Um, in my era, I mean, my mother had done the Groucho Marx, You Bet Your Life game years before and so forth. But uh, when I came in, uh, it, it had been an endowment uh, part of the industry. 
you know, there had been versions of home games, but nothing had ever really done anything exciting for some years. But when Wheel of Fortune came around and I started to hear about the ratings that it was doing, really like unknown to a lot of people, it was quietly growing. And uh, so we licensed it and it became at the time the number one game in the country, really changed the whole tenure of, of the company and Pressman. And soon after we of course, we did Jeopardy, you know, from the same producers. And it led us to do Double Dare, which was the Nickelodeon show. And then eventually it brought us to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which broke all the records. Oh, so that was your most successful TV game show sh game? Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was by far our biggest selling game ever. It won the first toy of the year. The first year it was handed out. Uh, it was like the Academy Awards of the, for the toy business. <laughs> And uh, when I accepted the award, I was very excited. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Um, you know, to beat Hasbro and Parker, you know, and Bradley. That was, and, 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 and the very nice coincidence was that the two people from Milton Bradley and Hasbro were the ones who handed the award that night. Wow. <laughs> so as far as industry, do you guys all know each other? Or you obviously know of each other? Or how does that work? Is that a tight yeah. group in the gaming industry? Yeah. No, definitely. It's a, it's a very small it's a group. Yeah. And you get together, you know, there's um, a summer conference we used to get together in. And then a toy fair, you get some dinners where the whole, everybody gets together. So, you know, now, you know, been retired for a few years, so I don't but know they the still, younger. They, they still yeah. speak with each other uh, on occasion, yeah. you know, yeah. for yeah. various reasons. Yeah. That's cool. Small knit group, really. So we're talking to uh, a century of American toys and games, a uh, story of Pressman toy uh, authors, Jim Pressman and Donna Pressman. One of the things that uh, I wanted to ask, so you got together with the other toy makers. Was there a lot of talking in code so you didn't give away anything that was coming out? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of, you need to protect yourself. And uh, once Toy Fair comes, which has changed its time frame from year to year, you, you, uh, that's when you expose the line you know, to the buyers and then word gets out. So, I mean, most companies, we would exchange catalogs so you can see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. we, we show them what we're doing, you know. So there's an, I think it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice industry from that standpoint. There might be a couple of companies that I, I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, talk about, um, <laughs> in, Go ahead. So, uh, you know, but when you have something successful in the toy industry, oftentimes it, it does get copied. I mean, after we did our game shows, other people, you know, went after a hundred thousand dollar pyramid or, or, you know, family feud. And those were very popular too. So, you know, it, it trends, it's a very, it's a very fashion industry, they call it. Because every year you need to come up with a new hot item. The fortunate thing about the game business is that games, unlike a lot of toys, last for generations. And when you have games like Rummy Cube and Mastermind and Triominoes and Chinese Checkers, uh, you have a base where you can build your company on. And that's why we were so successful for 100 years, because we never tried to be more than what we were. And once we started to focus strictly on the game part of the industry and forgot about preschool toys and some of the other things, that's when we really became more successful than we ever had been. Now, I'm holding the book in my hand here, and it is a beautiful coffee table book. And Mike was talking about colors and graphics and fonts. 
How does that factor in? Is there certain colors, combinations of fonts that you find are more effective? Like if you just had a plain box versus, you know, bright primary colors, how does that work in the development of a game? No, you're absolutely right. Packaging is extremely important. I mean, that's what the consumer is looking at. So we would oftentimes take some of our boxes and go to the game aisle and put a box on the shelf and see if that stood out on the shelf. And a lot of uh, companies put the boxes on their side. Other people like Target and I think Walmart now, they put the boxes straight up so you can see the whole box, you know, which is much more powerful. But yeah, packaging is extremely, extremely uh, important. And like you mentioned, the white lettering on the red boxes, that changed the whole nature of the basic game business, checkers and chess and Chinese checkers. It made a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I noticed like Coca-Cola, red, Marlboro, red and white. So there, mm. there's definitely something to that. Yeah. Now, as, as far as um, shelf space, how does that work like in a retail outfit? Who gets the top shelf? How does that work? You know, it's a, uh, a buyer's decision. Um, it's not like, uh, I think, you know, the food industry or the, the drug industry where you might own four feet of space. Basically, you have to sell each individual product and make a case that it deserves to be on your shelf. And uh, when you become more successful, it breeds more trust which means they'll buy more from you. So, you know, success breeds success, but it's all really individual products and what you, how are you going to support it with TV or now with social media? So it's an individual basis and the buyer is a very powerful person who makes those decisions. Jim, when you were in charge of the company, what was one product or, or set of merchandise that really surprised you with how successful it was? Well, I guess there were a couple. Gooey Louie. Is one of my favorite. Oh, you took Gooey Louie. I was literally, that was my next question. <laughs> it has to be. Yeah, it let's talk Gooey Louie. So it's a head, and uh, you load the head with these green things that are kind of like uh, slime or snot, as the case may be. And uh, you pull these gooeys out of his nose. And when you pull the wrong one, it trips a lever and his brains pop out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that means you, you've lost the ground. But when we did that game, nobody was doing these kinds of gross kinds of games. Uh, it was uh, unheard of that uh, a mother would buy this for their child. But the truth is the child is the one who makes the decision. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll be happy. You buy the. We'll talk about the focus groups. Well, yeah. The, the focus group for Louie Louie was interesting because other toy companies had passed on this, uh, other game companies had passed on this because they had tested it and they tested it with kids and moms. And uh, the kid would always say he didn't like it because he knows his mother didn't want him to have it. But when we tested it, we tested it behind the one way mirror uh, just with the kids. And when at the end of the day, after the kids had played like six or seven games and they asked, uh, which one would you like to take home if you could? Gooey Louie was by far <laughs> the biggest. <laughs> yeah. And once again, that name is fantastic. Who came up with that name? You know, uh, that's a good question. It came in because it was called Snotface. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> we didn't like that. So it was someone within our marketing company that, that, that changed it to Gooey Louie. <laughs> yeah. Once again, alliteration, Chinese checkers, Gooey Louie. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I would have to say Gooey Louie is a better name than Snotface. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> don't want to rub it in your face. Right. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, yes. But, um, you know, we were talking the other day about early successes, and one of the biggest early successes was a game called Dizzy Dizzy Dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And uh, that came in uh, from the, to the company as a tornado, uh, a whirling tornado. And we knew that tornadoes were geographically not everywhere. So we were looking for something else uh, to be uh, uh, a tornado. And I remember it was Ron Byrne in our purchasing department who sat in at all the new products meetings, who came in with another alliteration, (laughs) Dizzy Dizzy Dinosaur. And that was the first big action game hit that we had with a really great commercial. Oh, that's a great name. See, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm, if somebody were to come into me and say, it's a tornado, I would not have thought, well, geographically, that's not everywhere. So not everyone's going to get that. So that, that's why, that's why you were in charge of the toy company yes, and, and I host a podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's a twister. Yeah. You know, right. Well, we thought, you know, hurricane. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Yeah, kids, yeah. Kids love natural disasters. Well, I think it was a a home run with the Dizzy Dizzy Dinosaur because that's another game that I played as a as a kid as a youngster as well. Uh, uh, getting great. that one, so but just seeing the pictures, like I said, just more nostalgia as I look at these these pictures in the uh, book. I go, oh yeah. yeah, I remember that one. And it's like, oh, I remember where I was. Like the Wheel of Fortune game, my older brother got that as a gift for his birthday, uh, and we played that game for months and months <laughs> every day. It was awesome. Yeah, it was a, you know, it was a cleverly designed home version, uh, which, uh, you know, really took some thought, but somebody within the company came up with the way with the rule book and everything so that you wouldn't know the answers and you could find out where the letters were and the, and the whole thing. Yeah, you went home with the, the home version and box of rice-a-roni. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're sending you home with rice-a-roni in the, the, the box. The home version of the game. Yes. Yeah. No, I, the home version, that's, that's brilliant. And that was your idea? Well, I mean, the licensing was. I mean, I, and once we did that, then the world of home, you know, home, home versions of, of game shows, uh, we were the king. Now, let me ask you this. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but tell us one idea that you thought was going to kill and just bombed. Well, there was one. Uh, it, it was uh, called Rat, Rattler. And it was a snake. And uh, actually, there were two. There was that one. And clown around. That was another one. A lot of kids don't like clowns. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that one was a bomb. And the Rattler thing, part of the issue there was that the snake was never visible until it kind of popped out or something. And uh, so you, you won't find either of those in the book. <laughs> <laughs> they say if you hit 300, you know, you go into the Hall of Fame. So, uh, you know, we, we, did, we did do that. But we, you know, uh, there, there were some, there were some doozies. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. We had a great time today talking about it. Just tell us, uh, where's a great place to find your book? I mean, it's available everywhere. Amazon, I, I imagine. Right. It's on, uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's being, uh, the publisher is Abbeville Press, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E. Um, they're selling it in MoMA in the Museum of Modern, Modern Art. Art, right? Wow. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Abbeville's handling, uh, the, uh, distribution and, uh, it, November 29th is when it becomes available. And 
So I don't have more information as to where it can be found, but definitely online in the places that uh, you mentioned. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, I'm looking at the hardcover right now, and it's awesome. Plus, the, the picture's inside, and I'm a, I'm a history and picture nerd, so I think just the pictures by themselves for me was, uh, was awesome to see. Yeah, when you talk about toys, you don't want to read boring text. You want to see the pictures, and like you said, the colors and everything, it, it, it invokes the memories of childhood. Yeah, no, that's really kind of you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. A shout out to my wife, Donna, here, you know, who always says, you know, she was not part of the company, but without her, this book wouldn't have happened. You know, she was a force and and an organizer, and and she was with me every step of the way, looking at the pictures in these Playthings magazines. We we had a lot of fun um, together doing the project together. The research was fun. We had to do a little traveling. That was fun. But but the biggest thrill I got was watching Jimmy look at, you know, ads and things we'd never seen before and, and get really excited. And um, the uh, playthings were found at the Strong Museum up in Rochester. And um, we spent two days there. And, you know, to spend nine to five for two days in a library can be a little boring, if you will. But we kept, we kept getting so excited every time we found a different ad that we, yeah. we, we tore through 1922 to the present, you know, in two days, all these playthings. Yeah. But it was, it was just one ad after another, and it really, really kept us going. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be a labor of love because you're – you're looking into the history of your family, the history of toys, which is fun. I mean, all around, it's got to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot there. A lot there. So once again, the name of the book is A Century of American Toys and Games, The Story of Pressman Toy. And it will be available soon. So make sure you guys go out there and check it out. <laughs> well, we had a great time with you guys. I hope you guys had fun with us today. We did Thank totally. It's been great. We really enjoyed it. That was a powerful interview, wasn't it, Mike or DJ Rez? That was awesome. Yeah, I was very official, though. I called you Michael. You did? Yes. yes. And then he called me Rez. He knows me. Yes. Well, who doesn't know you? God, Jim Pressman yes. knows me. Yes. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. It was a lot of fun talking games. Uh, definitely pick up this book. Uh, you and I got each got a copy of it uh, digitally, and then you got the hard copy. It's, uh, it, it looks awesome. And like I said, it's nostalgia, so pick it up. It's going to be great. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this powerful episode. We just asked you one thing. Please tell a friend about our powerful podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, at AmazingPopPod. Follow us on Instagram, like our Facebook page. And until next time, you've just enjoyed the Amazing Pop Culture Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Amazing Pop Culture Podcast. The Amazing Pop Culture Podcast is available everywhere fine podcasts are found. Please leave a rating and review where you listen to podcasts. Like and follow the Amazing Pop Culture Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And shop our Amazing Pop Culture merch. This has been an Amazing Pop Culture Podcast production.